Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world, especially Kong's abs? Uh, my name is John Keeley. And my name is Jay Swords. This is the podcast segment of the show that's not broadcast on station KALA. Our guest for this 411th show is Annalee Newitz, author, freelance writer, and Hugo Award-winning podcaster. And we're going to be talking about their book, Four Lost Cities, The Secret History of the Urban Age. Our history buffs are Terry Toppler and Ed Broders. Ed, why don't you start us off? Thanks, Jay. Um, my wife and I visited Cahokia probably 12 or 14 years ago. Um, and other than the mound, um, it wasn't, it, there wasn't much there. And the archaeologists who were working on site um, said as much. But you've, you've described Cahokia as uh, an archaeological jewel. So what's changed in the meantime? I, I can't speak to what it was like when you guys visited. Um, there is now, I, I don't know if there was the visitor center there when you were there, um, but now there's a very beautiful visitor center, um, which is quite helpful. There's a, at the visitor center, you can see, um, you know, artifacts that have been taken from various excavations. You can see a recreation of what the villages uh, might have looked like or what the, I shouldn't say villages, but what um, the residential areas in the city might have looked like. It's, it's a really cool recreation. And they did it um, in connection with local indigenous people. So there were indigenous people involved in creating the display as well as uh, Western archaeologists. And what's even cooler at the museum for people like me who are big nerds about this stuff is there's a giant map of the site where you can see all the different mounds and you can kind of see from above, um, you know, all of the different parts of, of the area. And so there's a park. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And there's a, an enormous park that you can walk around in and visit all of the different mounds. Um, of course, there's the big showstopper, which is Monk's Mound, the big, big mound at the center of the park. And you can walk to the top. And from the top, you can see St. Louis. Um, and of course, uh, St. Louis was also home to an enormous mound, which was just called Big Mound. Uh, but that was demolished uh, in the 19th century by white settlers who were building a train. So they were like, hey, there's a mound here. Let's use it for, you know, putting underneath the train tracks. That sounds good. Um, and there's records from the time of, of um, how they discovered lots of artifacts in there, uh, all of which were lost, which is really depressing. Um, so what's there is the mounds. You can still see the mounds, you can, which gives you a really good sense of the layout of the city. Um, and it's a beautiful park. You can walk through it. Uh, but you do have to kind of do it with your virtual reality imagination glasses on, you know, to kind of imagine what it would have been like when there were tons of houses there and people everywhere and um, the mounds were fresh and new. Um, so uh, there are no, you know, stone structures. There's no houses. You know, it's not like visiting um, Pompeii where there's like a lot of stone structures that are left. So like I said, it's a little bit more of the virtual reality imagination goggles, but um, it's still, I just think, breathtaking to see 
the remains of a city that's so different from the kinds of cities that we build now. Obviously, things have changed in the meantime. (laughs) She actually took you to St. Louis. You were at the yard. She didn't tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Terry. (laughs) Yeah, Cahokia Cahokia also has a wonderful sun run and walk, which I did two years ago before COVID. So it's an annual annual, uh, race, which you can either walk or run through and around the mounds. It's it's quite amazing. Um, Which brings me to a my next question actually is, um, when we look at the artifacts and how perhaps they fit into social relationships in Cahokia, which at the moment we still don't feel they have a written language, um, what are the challenges of contextual archaeology? I always think of the book I used to have in the library called The Motel of the Mysteries, which was a parody a little bit <laughs> on excavation of a Motel 6 (laughs) yeah, in the 23rd or 24th century and how archaeologists take some of these artifacts but misinterpret their relationships. Can you you talk about that, please? The challenges of contextual archaeology. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because there actually is a Mississippian site um, that is called like the Motor Inn Motel site, um, just because it's on, I'm I'm not, it's something like Motor Site, um, and it's just named after the fact that it used to have a motel built on top of it, um, but it is actually an ancient um, settlement. Um, So the challenges are immense. I mean, part of the challenge is the fact that the site was so... um, poorly preserved by Europeans who came and settled the area and plowed over a lot of stuff. So anytime archaeologists begin a dig, they have to go through about a foot or two feet of just this garbage that's from plowing. Um, And that's, of course, ruined anything that would have been closer to the surface. Um, And, you know, what we get from excavating is Um, layouts of houses. We get um, lots and lots of material that's been left behind. That's just stuff from everyday life. You know, it's uh, dishes, it's, you know, the, um, the remains of ceremonial items, uh, a lot of garbage, a lot of, you know, remnants of meals, um, you know, bones. um, And we do have, you know, like I said, we have these ceremonial objects that are figurines and that are um, often depicting uh, different people, different uh, ceremonial figures. But yeah, how do we put that together without a written language? Um, and that was the question that I kept asking archaeologists. And of course, they made a good point, which is that even if you have written language from an ancient civilization, you can't always trust it. In fact, written language actually isn't even less trustworthy vehicle because people lie all the time. They're like, this king was the greatest. He killed a jillion people. Also, he planted a tree and it turned into a dragon. And then he like rode on the back of fire or like what? I mean, we see this all the time in the written record. And it's like, okay, is that actually more helpful than digging up the remains of a house to see how many people lived in a given space? Um, You know, so it's, um, it's always a struggle. And I think that what archaeologists are trying to do now at Cahokia is really just get a sense of how big the place was, how people just live their everyday lives, what they ate, what their social relationships were. One of the big, really interesting questions is, how did they allocate food? We know that they grew, uh, they had incredible farms, very uh, sophisticated farming techniques, and they had these massive farms in the uplands. And how did they we, we just don't know how did, did like families have like 
a farm that they visited? Did they share farms? Were the farms owned by the city and then everything was allocated equally? Um, They didn't have marketplaces, really. So we don't think that they were trading. Um, So those are the kinds of questions that that we're trying to figure out. And the, the answers are coming slowly and we have to do it very, very carefully. Uh, and particularly at Cahokia, there um, we absolutely archaeologists cannot excavate human remains for all kinds of good reasons. Um, so we can't just do what we would do, say, at Chitalhuyuk, the 9,000-year-old site, and just dig up all the skeletons because, you know, that's what they're allowed to do there. Um, so it's, it's a slow process, but um, we're learning more and more all the time. And, um, and like I said, I think the thing that's important is that we're just learning about how everyday people lived. You know, that's, that's a really um, growing area. Um, and, uh, and it's nice because then we can kind of imagine ourselves there. You know, we don't have to say like, well, I would never be king, so I don't know how I would have lived at Cahokia. But like, by looking at someone's house and seeing what they ate and kind of what they did all day, you can kind of imagine like, oh, yeah, if I was living in Cahokia, I would just be chilling in this particular kind of structure. And like I'd have a nice roof and I'd be, you know, eating really tasty um, Marshelder stew or whatever. Okay. Uh, with Cahokia and the other, um, with the exception of Pompeii, but the other uh, two cities, in creating these incredible foundations of the city um was there any kind of discovery or invention i mean to make a mound as massive as it was you're sitting there and mm-hmm. thinking there's got to be an easier way than just piling dirt up i mean you know, there's again very intelligent people looking for better methods were there any kind of recorded tools or to come across something or maybe metals about ancient aliens here no, no 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 and and they don't have the uh, jewish lasers like that one congresswoman <laughs> right. said so anyway um so, but i'm saying uh if you're gonna go there we gotta go all the way no i mean because i mean it, are there certain metals because I mean, when you've got cities that are so profoundly different than others and i know location and jay said water was part of it but was there some discovery there that that changed the rules of the game that we know of you know, all of these cities have different kinds of technologies. And one of the things that one of the technologies that they all have is really not a technology. It's more like ideology or maybe um, uh, social ideas or politics, whatever you want to call it. They These were people who got together in these cities because they shared some idea of how they wanted to live together and so when you say like well geez you know like grabbing dirt in a basket and piling it onto you know a pyramid and and tamping it down well that's a terrible way to do anything um it's true it isn't it isn't great they didn't have um you know bulldozers but part of what they were doing at cahokia wasn't just technological they were building those mounds because it was part of their spiritual belief system. And the mounds were a way of um, showing that this was a city that touched the upper world as well as the underworld and a way of kind of creating monuments to, um, to this social movement that they shared. And so it wasn't like they were doing it for a pragmatic reason. They were doing it for reasons that go beyond that. And so, um, so they... I don't think that they were looking for a technological breakthrough. I think that there was something about that ritual act of carrying the dirt and, and, you know, 
adding to this structure um, that was kind of an end in itself, if that makes sense. Getting the publication um, of their thesis, that's right, what it was right. for, yeah. Um, yeah, it was, it was cultural capital. Yeah. <laughs> right. um, but I think, but, but um, to, to very, very briefly finish answering, uh, at, uh, both at Chitalhoyuk, the, the 9,000-year-old city, and at Pompeii, we do see lots of examples of, of really interesting um, technological breakthroughs in how to build, uh, but also like how to cook, um, all kinds of labor-saving devices. Um, and at Pompeii, where they'd had a terrible earthquake just a decade, really, before the volcano, there's all this evidence that they were rebuilding their houses to try to make them earthquake-proof. So people were trying to improve on the structural uh, quality of their houses and their temples. So we know that these were people who were innovating all the time. And Lee, I think I'm going to get the last question here, and so I'm going to kind of walk away from history to the research process. Uh, one of the things mm -hmm. that struck me almost immediately when I was reading your book, and it just got better and better as time went on, was the number of female archaeologists that you were talking to and getting information from. I probably read more female archaeological names in one book than I had in the last 10 years. So I have to ask the question, were you actively looking uh, for lady archaeologists to talk to, or did that just happen organically? And then how did those conversations go? Since you've done research on other things, was it different doing research where you were using so many uh, ladies as your information sources compared to more the more traditional uh, sciences where where they're still so male dominated? I'm just interested what your your uh, sense of that was. Yeah, I mean, I've been working as you know a journalist in looking at technology and science for you know a couple decades now. I'm an old person, and um, you know, throughout my career, I've been writing about fields that were male-dominated, um, and I've been in a field that's male-dominated. Almost all my bosses have been men, um, and a lot of my editors have been men. Um, so I'm pretty aware of the the doodliness of the <laughs> of the world. <laughs> the doodliness, um, that's what you refer to that's them. A great, and, that's yeah, a great term. I love that's that. That's too nice of a term. Um, <laughs> and uh, and so you know. It's always been my practice the entire time I've been working to um, try to make sure that I talk to as diverse a group as possible, um, you know, talk to as many women as I can, you know, talk to people of color. Um, and especially, you know, when you're talking about archaeology, it's really important to try to get the perspective of people who are connected to the cultures that you're writing about. Um, so, I mean, part of it was conscious, part of it was um, just that, you know, I would talk to one archaeologist and they would recommend another archaeologist. And, um, you know, people, especially in archaeology, I, I think this isn't true in other sciences, too. People form kind of family-like networks with mm -hmm. people they've worked with um, in the field. You know, you kind of start to feel like this is these are your people and this is your pod. And, and, um, and so what I found is that archaeological digs where there are women in positions of authority tend to just have more women involved overall. Um, and archaeological digs that are, including ones run by men, where they are very eager to hire women as well as men. Um, you know, there's just, there's just some archaeological groups that do that and others don't. Um, and so I was just, um, you know, as someone who... Uh, 
you know, talk to women like I get naturally recommended to talk to more women, I guess. Um, so it wasn't I guess this is a very long, awkward way of saying like it was partly conscious and partly just that these were the best people working in the field. You know, these were all people who had made significant contributions to uh, the archaeology of these different cities. Um, and, you know, I was really lucky that I got them to talk to me, <laughs> honestly, because they're all really busy. <laughs> yeah, we appreciate you reaching out to everybody except for the indentured servant graduate students. They do not need to be in the picture. Oh, she, <laughs> she, even, she even talked about them a little bit. So, yeah, she was all okay. inclusive. We would like to thank yeah. our guests for the 411th show. Annalie Newitz, the author, freelance writer, Hugo Award-winning podcaster, who talked to us about her, their book, Four Lost Cities, The Secret History of the Urban Age. History Bus for today's show were Terry Toppler and Ed Broders. You can listen to ROIs. It's being broadcast on Friday nights on KALA HD2, 88.5 FM and 106.1 FM in the Quad City region at 9.30 p.m. You can also listen to the show as it's being broadcast on TuneIn.com. Put KALA HD2 in the search box and look for ROI. Many of our previously recorded shows can be heard at SoundCloud.com. Just put KALA Radio in the search, click on the first icon, and scroll down to find ROI shows. You can also find ROI on all your favorite streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcast, and Google Podcast. ROI is recorded at station KALA, St. Ambrose University.